we have a guest speaker today. Reverend Maria Christina is off today. Our guest is Reverend Greg Ward, a Cradle Unitarian Universalist. He has worked as, and you, I, this is interesting, a cook, a clown, an elevator operator, a pharmaceutical engineer, and a chaplain before finding his niche for the last 20 years as a UU minister. He recently resigned his position as senior development minister at the UU of Santa Monica to move to Hayward and marry Lucy Ruzel. Good morning. I want to I want to thank uh, Reverend Maria for inviting me and uh, for Bob uh, and Lindley for taking such good care of me. I'm a big fan of poetry, so this morning's uh, call to worship is from one of my favorite poets, um, whose name is Carl Dennis, and he was uh, the Pulitzer Prize winner back in 2002. This is called Invitation. This is your invitation to the ninth grade play at Jackson Park Middle School, 8 p.m., November 17, 1947. Macbeth, authored by Shakespeare and directed by Mr. Grossman and Mrs. Sylvia, with scenery from Miss Ferguson's art class. A lot of effort has gone into it. Dozens of students have chosen to stay after school week after week with their teachers just to prepare for this one evening a gift to help transport you to somewhere important. Even if you have moved away, you'll want to return. Jackson Park, in case you have forgotten, stands at the end of Jackson Street at the top of the hill. Doubtless, you recall that Macbeth is about ambition and ego. This is the play for you if you have ever been tempted to step over others on your way to the top. If you haven't been, it will make you feel grateful. Just allow time to get lost before arriving. So many roads are ready to take you forward into the empty world, misty with promises. So few will lead you back to what you have been missing. Just get an early start. Call in sick to the office this once. Postpone your vacation a day or two. Prepare to find the road neglected, the street signs rusted, the school dark, the doors locked, the windows broken. This is where the challenge comes in. Do you suppose anything really great could have ever been discovered if the inventors had been deterred by confusion? Or if the pioneers had been worried about feeling uncomfortable? Somewhere the students are speaking the lines you never learned. Somewhere days before that, this invitation went out, the one that you are reading on your knees in the attic, the contents of a trunk piled beside you. Forget about your passport. You don't need to go on that exotic trip just yet. Foreign destinations will seem even more beautiful 
Once you complete the journey, you begin today. Once you complete the journey, you failed to finish so long ago. Why do we build walls, especially ones that separate us from joy and from the people we need and the people who need us? I was watching the Senate impeachment trial while writing the sermon. That should be a warning. <laughs> and also listening to the Democrats try and climb over each other in Iowa and New Hampshire and the immense and somewhat uh, rehearsed posturing at the State of the Union. And I'll say that it feels really hard to watch walls being built, especially if you still have some glimmer of hope in your heart, like a good dream that you think is still possible of coming true. And it's especially hard if in this waiting you have already given some ground to doubt or despair. Now, you might think that watching Congress work is a suicide mission for anyone who's still looking for love and has hopes that they may still release some of their burdens and be set free. This is a sermon about the kind of love bold enough to do just that and to help us scale walls and be liberated. Once, early in my ministry, a question got lodged in my brain that I have never been able to forget. The administrator of the church that I was working with um, arrived in my office on our usual day at our usual time for our weekly meeting. But when she not so casually flashed an enormous engagement ring, I knew it would not be our usual meeting. She was 72 years old, but that was not the surprising part. What surprised me was her radiance and the excitement which lit up her entire face and body, which up to that point she had managed to keep relatively well contained every time I saw her. Up till then, she had returned, re, re, routinely referred to her three previous marriages as World War I, <laughs> World War II, and the war to end all wars. And she often introduced herself as an escaped prisoner from the institution of marriage, vowing never to go back into captivity. What called her back, I wonder? What power compelled her to set aside her trepidation and get back to what she had renounced. But when you stop to think about it, isn't that what we all do, right? After that epic breakup, you know, the one in high school or maybe college or maybe last week if you learn by repetition, <laughs> as the hurt fades and we take our heart out of the cast that we'd placed it in, don't we all just bend that smile back in place and look for love again? Sure we do, but 
if we're really honest, most of us also put a few conditions on love after heartbreak. We arrange for a few hoops to be jumped through. We get a bulldog named Trust to guard love, and every year the leash on Trust gets shorter. Or have you given up on love? I know it's an option, but it's hard since love is really an essential ingredient in just about everything we really want, like community and compassion and good neighbors and understanding. Even justice, according to Cornell West, is simply what love looks like in public. Or maybe you never lost love. Maybe you've never been hurt. Anyone here like that? <laughs> Raise your hand. You can go. <laughs> because this sermon isn't for you. It's for the rest of us. But we will give you the collection if you share with us how you did it. <laughs> Some years back, Dian Yimi Norbu found himself on the path looking for love. Some years prior to that, he'd experienced heartbreak. When he was 13, monks came to his home and took his three-year-old brother away across the Himalayan mountains to the Lhasa Temple in Tibet. Turns out that Norbu's little brother was Tenzin Gyatso, the man that we know today as the 14th Dalai Lama. But it also turns out that having a brother who is the Dalai Lama doesn't make you immune to heartbreak or loneliness or the need for love. So every few years, out of love, Norbu made the trek from the Xinghai province across the mountains in the Himalayas to see his brother in the temple in Tibet. Years later, in a reflection about one of his earliest trips, he wrote this passage. He said, before long, the trail led me to vast herds of wild yaks. The sight of such majestic creatures making their home on such a high and barren plateau has always amazed me. Somehow these shy creatures manage to sustain themselves on the stunted grass roots, which is all that nature provides in those parts. When a great herd plunges into wild gallop across the steppes, the earth shakes and clouds of dust mark their passage. At night, they ward off the cold by huddling close together with the calves in the center. They stand so close that the condensation from their breath rises in a single column of steam. Nomads crossing the plains have occasionally tried to domesticate the yak calves, but they have never succeeded. Somehow, when they are bred in captivity, they lose their strength and their power of endurance. They are no good as pack animals because their backs immediately get sore. Their relationship with humans has therefore remained that of game and hunter. Now you might think that finding a bunch of yaks on the path has nothing to do with finding love. But did you notice the similarities that Norbu points out in that passage? How love is often found in out-of-the-way places where you're usually looking for something else? And how love is naturally resilient, sustaining itself on very little, and yet it holds the power to make the earth shake 
and how it instinctively surrounds and protects what is young and most vulnerable, and how love brings together and forms a common breath with everything around it, and especially interesting, how it refuses to be domesticated and grows weak whenever we try to load it up with the burdens that it wasn't meant to carry. There are a lot of similarities between yaks and love when we find it in the wild. Like the yak and buffalo, today's love, I think, has lost its wildness, like it was raised in captivity in a Hallmark factory. It might look the same at first, but it lacks spirit and resilience. But maybe it's because we've gotten so accustomed to domesticating love. We've been taught to believe that love will help lighten our load if we pile on all the burdens of disappointment and doubt and hurt and prejudice that we picked up along the way. There are many people in this room, I'm guessing, for whom this might be true. People who, after the magic of the romance in their relationship has started to wear thin, they wake up one morning disillusioned and they take a good long look across the breakfast table and notice that this once beautiful creature that they're living with has begun to look a lot like a yak. <laughs> and not the majestic kind, no. This yak is heavier than they remembered and shaggier, and it's not carrying the load that they expected. And they themselves have started to feel weaker and confused, like they've been cut off from the herd. And frankly, their back has become sore, and they can't remember how this all happened. How did it get to this point? I could, at this point, ask for those who have felt this way to raise your hand. <laughs> But I realize that you might be sitting right now next to the yak in question. <laughs> or you might be the yak in question. And anyway, it would be awkward to go public and admit that you occasionally feel the urge to run up to the attic and look for your passport. <laughs> or that sometimes you can still feel the call of the wild telling you that something is missing. I could ask, but I won't because I've learned this is true for everyone. It begins soon after our first Hallmark Hall of Fame after school special and takes root after we've read our third or fourth Cosmo or People magazine. That's when our ego gets involved. Our ego's job, remember, is to protect us, to save us from awkwardness or embarrassment or loneliness or fend off threats to our image or reputation, protect our brand, keep our identity stock high. Love to our ego is simply another tool, something to be used, a power tool, if you will. And nothing is as dangerous as our ego with power tools. That's how love becomes domesticated. When our egos begin to confuse the power of love with the love of power, inherent worth and dignity becomes harder and harder to see. We stop noticing the beauty in the and the yak laying beside us in bed, the gentleness of the yak in the adjacent cubicle at work, the deservedness of the yak down the pew from us in church 
for the vision of the yak across the aisle in Congress. We forget we are all one another's yaks. When this happens, we find ourselves habitually stuck in a version of red hat, blue hat. And that's when we know it's time for a journey. Listen again to the instructions from Carl Dennis in his poem. Just allow time to get lost before arriving. So many roads are ready to take you forward, so few will lead you back to what you have been missing. Just get an early start. Call in sick to the office just this once. Postpone your vacation a day or two. Prepare to find the road neglected, the street signs rusted, the school dark, the doors locked, the windows broken. This is where the challenge comes in. Do you suppose anything really great could have ever been discovered if the inventors had been deterred by confusion or if the pioneers worried about feeling uncomfortable? Learning how to center love in our lives instead of ego is hard. And our culture doesn't do a great job of teaching us. It's also humbling, but I've found that when we're willing to unpack some of the pain that we routinely ask love to carry for us, or as I like to say, when we learn to reduce our baggage to a carry-on level, we are rewarded because love finds ways to put what is most needed and sensitive and vulnerable at the center of the herd. I know that's true because as Bob mentioned in the introduction of me, I am recently married. When Lucy and I moved in uh, this past July and began to unpack after years of living separately, we inevitably fell into some red hat, blue hat conversations. And it was at that point that I remembered some advice I once read from marriage counselor, Dr. Gary Chapman. In the book, Language of Love, Chapman described his theory that every person has five different ways to share love or exchange love with their partner. These five ways are words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. Chapman believed that although almost everyone is conversant in all five languages, we each have a primary or dominant love language. He even developed a test, which is available online, which will reveal your natural love language. But perhaps more interesting, he found that for whatever reason, people are usually drawn to those who speak a different love language than themselves, requiring that we figure out how to translate and become fluent. Now, I took this test, and it showed that I tested highest for words. <laughs> Minister, right? I love words. That's how I understand and recognize and describe and share love. That is not, however, how Lucy understands and feels love. 
And so many times when I describe the red hat for the 27th time, I can actually see her brain scream too many words. Stop talking. To her, I just become a yak, 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 yak. <laughs> what I have had to learn is that no matter how hard I try, I can't turn her into a word person. She can only understand a love language spoken in the way that she has learned to communicate. Her motto, what she needs me to know is, I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. My motto would be, well, it doesn't really matter what my motto would be because it's just words. And at that point, words have run out. And what I really need to do is put down those words so that I can pick up on what that thing is within her that needs to be put at the center of the herd. If love is what we really want, we need to learn how to become fluent in more than our love language. Although it's always a choice, it often becomes a choice on whether we want to be right or whether we want to be happy, which is often a choice between love and ego. And if we insist on being right, any disagreement can become the hill that love dies on, like Capitol Hill has become for Congress. But lest you think that in public, as this works out in our governance system, that ours is the only Congress who acts like a big ego with power tools, I just wanted to share this, which I came across this week. In 2009, the Chinese government banned bodhisattva monks in Tibet from reincarnating without government permission. <laughs> in a statement from the Administration for Religious Affairs, monks were reminded that the law strictly stipulates the procedure by which one is to reincarnate and is, quote, an important move to institutionalize the management of reincarnation, end quote. I hope from that we can get the picture that the urge to control is everywhere. And it's not just way out there, it's in here. Especially when we're faced with the vulnerability inherent in being truly open and honest and transparent. There's a story of a man who wrote to the IRS saying that he hadn't been able to sleep since he cheated on his taxes the previous year. Since I failed to fully disclose my earnings on last year's return, he said, I've enclosed a cashier's check for $2,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> Friends, the work of reclaiming love and putting it at the center of our lives has never, has never been harder than it is today or more important. We've been called back to a path that we may have renounced or maybe never learned, and it will ask us to set down our burdens and grief to make some room in our heart so that our hands will be free for the work before us. We'll remember it's not love who must carry our pain. 
It's us who must carry love where it's needed to go if we're ever hoping to change hearts and save lives. Even if it means grabbing our best hat and walking down the aisle, dividing Congress. And if that sounds hard, if you still carry some unhealed hurts, it's probably best to not start the process with Mitch McConnell. <laughs> start the process close to home. Start with the person closest in your life. Maybe even closest to you right now. Or maybe just start with yourself. Just remember, the journey will take you off the beaten path. You'll need to learn to listen and speak a language not your own. Huddle close till you can see your individual breath forming a common stream with those around you. And then you'll see what's most tender within and around find its way to the center of the herd. Amen and blessed be.